0: What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Ian Froman. He's an incredible jazz drummer based in New York City and has taught at Berklee College of Music, Drummers Collective, New School University, and City College of New York, in addition to his private lessons business. He's toured the world with many of the greatest players in the genre, including, but certainly not limited to, John Abercrombie, Dave Holland, Michael Brecker, Gary Burton, Matthew Garrison, and so many more. It's insane, his resume is ridiculous. But this was actually one of my favorite conversations I've ever had, and I'm not just saying on the podcast. Ian is such a fun storyteller, and he's got a lot of stories. Also a big shout out to Mike Powers from Boston who suggested I reach out to Ian Thank you, Mike. But all right, here is Ian Froman's Big Fat Five. Cheers. So if you walked into a drum shop and one of the workers gave you some sticks and they said that they're going to be doing one of those social media grooves of the day and they want to film you for 30 seconds to a minute,
1: what would Ian play? I would definitely be playing some jazz time playing. That would be my go-to because it's the foundation for every song I play in the in the jazz genre. Mm-hmm. That would be my mainstay. Maybe secondary, I would sit down and, you know, play on the snare drum and go through some singles and doubles and stuff like that. But drum function for me is timekeeping. And as a drummer in a band, with the duality of being the timekeeper as well as an improviser contributing with the other members of the band, I'm certainly gonna hone in on being du ga doo-ga and start writing right away. It doesn't matter what sticks they hand me. <laughs> do you have a preferred stick though well the reason I said that as a joke is because I actually play five B's oh wow that's pretty big for jazz But right that's the reaction I've been getting for you know 30 years they're like wow you must be a rock drummer <laughs> uh, no jazz drummer well how come you're not playing 7A's yeah they're too small have you ever tried the 8D's nah, nah what about a 5A nah overplay that one you know, Tony Williams, you know, in the, in the second part of his career, he was playing a large stick, too, similar mm-hmm. to like, what well, I guess a 2B style stick. I went through a big transition early on and, um, you, I, I, you know, I had a stick crisis. I grew up in Canada playing a very particular stick. It was called the Bob Kirkwood. I don't even know if it was a guy, but it had those, those round lathe marks towards the back end where you hold. So when I went to Berkeley, I moved to the States. Of course, they didn't carry them because they were a Canadian stick, so I couldn't find them. So I switched to a 7A, which I thought was comparable. And then the more playing I did, I was reali- realizing I was playing like these little pencils, and it wasn't making it. So then I went through the 8D thing and into the 5A. And when I started really playing professionally, the rooms got bigger and bigger, and I felt like I was overplaying the 5A, and I was really scrunching my hand and like trying to get more than the wood could produce. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was I needed a transition to get bigger because when I tried a 5B, I was just like, Poof. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. No, I can't. That not that big heavy thing. So then I went to Maple and I realized the Maple stick is inherently lighter. So I tried those, you know, the SD9s, Levens, 10s, all that stuff. Didn't like them at all. And then I found the bolero, which was like holy grail stick, also maple and a tip that I don't like, but the whole overall feel was just magic. And then I couldn't stay with it because I just didn't like maple. I felt maple was too soft. The tips were breaking too easy. I didn't like that type of, you know, head on it. And I really liked just a traditional, old-fashioned bead. So I went back to the um, 5B. I was very lucky. I was still living in Boston at the time. And I called Vic Firth because I was using their sticks for so long. And they said, why don't you come to our facility. And this is obviously long before they joined forces with Zildjian and Vic greeted me. And I basically spent the day with Vic Firth and he showed me all the sticks. And he was just like, you know, these are them. This is that, that, da da da, all this stuff. And I said, well, these five B's are great, but you know, they're heavy. And he goes, well, you know, that wood, it has different densities and different weights. Have you ever tried a lighter five B? And I'm like, who knew? Who would yeah. have ever thought of that, you know? So I picked up a lighter pair and I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly what I'm looking for. So we weighed them. The ones that I like were really between 102 and 105 grams for the pair with a little sleeve on it. And I'm like, can I get a dozen of these? I signed and I became a Vic Firth artist and I went home with my new stick bag full of sticks. And the rest is history. I mean, I'm still playing the exact same sticks. I still order them in the same weight and they come to the house and I'm sort of like, "Wow." Okay. And I never ever think about sticks ever. Is there anything
0: on the actual like sleeve that would say this is a lighter version of it or is it just no. kind of you have to look Okay.
1: So, what's common with my students over the years is that they go to music stores and they say, I'd like a pair of 5B. And of course, the guy behind the counter reaches into the, the big square, hands him a stick, and the guy's like, no, no, can you take them all out? <laughs> and the guy's like, yeah, we don't do that. And he goes, I- I'm really looking for something particular. And the guy behind the counter's like, well, you know, they're all 5Bs, they're all the same. Of course. And of course, being my student, the guy's like, no, they're not. And having seen what I do, like, I actually have a scale. Mm. So when I get them... I actually mark on them 102g, 101, 103. So having the scale in the house, the students got influ- influenced by it, and of course they would go by their own scales, which is an oddity because when you see a scale, you're thinking one thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are you weighing? Yeah. Are you measuring, and I'm like, um, yeah, my sticks, and they're like, yeah, right. I'm like, no, seriously, I'm weighing my sticks. So my students actually had the audacity to go into these big box stores with a scale. And then the guy would pull out the entire thing, put him on the counter and it's just like, I don't know what you want to do with this. And, and the stu- instead of like, I can do it by feel, but these, these like these four students were like weighing every single one. It was just like, and then they would come and say, oh my God, I found two pairs of one oh twos.
0: I mean, it just adds another element of like joy and fun and geekery when it comes to drums, which is never oh a bad God, thing.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. I live my life by that I mean what's it's only a positive 100% right so yeah I'm all for it
0: all right so in a general sense and before we get into your big fat five what was your plan of attack in curating these groups of five records or this group of five records
1: I guess I was looking at it as like Desert Island stuff if I'm gonna be stuck and I'm gonna only have five records to choose from Which ones have I listened through the majority of my life that essentially I'm never sick of? It's an impossible task. But I think the ones that I did uh, mention have been pivotal in my listening and my growth as a musician, because I'm still listening to them to this day. And that says something after 30, 40 years. Absolutely.
0: Well, let's just hop into it. So the first one is uh, Quintessential. So the album is A Love Supreme, released here is 1965. The artist is John Coltrane. The song choice, and like I always say, I just ask people to pick a song because I want to play an example. But usually it's just the whole record, like you just said. Um, but the song you, we will be hearing is Resolution, and the drummer is Elvin Jones. So take it away, and then we will listen to a little bit of Resolution.
1: Yeah, so... I had the unbelievable opportunity to study with Elvin after I graduated from Berkeley. I won a scholarship from the national endowment for the arts and I went down to Florida at the Atlantic center for the arts. And I spent a month living in this sort of artistic commune having lessons all day with Elvin every day for a month. And we got really, really close and we hung out a lot and, we reminisced about John. And I'm like, who? And he goes, John Coltrane. And I'm like, <laughs> oh wait, you called him John? We called him Mr. Coltrane or Train, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, let's listen to some Train. he goes, he's John, you know, he's my <laughs> friend. I'm like, oh right, you knew him. And he had the love supreme symbols. Wow. His old K. So I was really fortunate to practice in the evenings on the Love Supreme cymbals. And, you know, having that sound in my head and then sitting down on his drum set or the the, the other set that he brought at the time he was endorsing Tama. I, I mean, I had a bag of old Ks that I was playing at the time as well, but I never took them out of the bag the entire month I was there because I could play Elvin's. So the cymbal sound represented him to me and that sound was reminiscent with every recording I heard. Even though he switched cymbals, like when you listen to um, Crescent, for example, which is the album that was recorded just prior to Love Supreme at the end of 64, it's a much heavier ride cymbal with a, a beefier stick sound. And, and I love that sound. In fact, I tracked down an old K over the years. I have one that sounds so incredibly similar. It could be that one. But the Love Supreme is just like, it's sort of the perfect. It's not too heavy. It's not too light. It's the perfect cymbal sound. But more importantly, the playing, it's magical. I mean, there's a repetition. And they're just repeating that over and over again. And, you know, repetition is, is used in many things. Let's say meditation, repeating the breath, mantra chanting, you know, repetition in yoga, for example, and the repetition of that thing sort of puts you in this zone or puts you in the mood or, or whatever you want to call it. And then it starts this incredible piano solo and something interesting happened towards the end of 64 leading into 65 harmonically, the music became more modal and there was a a very special relationship building between Elvin and McCoy that at the height of McCoy solo, he would switch to more of a chordal solo. And the chords would go over the bar line. So he wouldn't play traditional rhythms that would start and end on beat one. He would do, and people use this term, I don't necessarily subscribe to it, but they would call it, let's say, a hemiola, which is a rhythm that just goes round and round, so it doesn't have a start or a finish. And so Elvin would latch on to these chordal things that mccoy would do and he would incorporate the chordal stuff into his riding now at this point he was already alternating the ride cymbal pattern and he was doing it in a variety of methods instead of playing ding booga ding ding dinga ding with the accent on two and four just a static repetitive ride he would do it with the end of two and four being accented boom do ding. he would leave away some um upbeats therefore leaving himself with more quarter notes. He would tie upbeats into the following note, making it longer, a dotted quarter worth of a note, and he would invert the pattern, put the end of one or the end of three, and he would tie those inverted ride symbol patterns. So he sort of developed a real ride symbol vocabulary. Now this was happening all over the place. The end of the 50s, Jimmy Cobb was doing it with a ton of quarters. Joe Chambers did this to very, very little fanfare. And certainly Tony Williams was doing it like crazy. And of course, Roy Haynes. But Elvin had this method that matched the exact surroundings, which was McCoy playing quarterly in rhythm. So McCoy at the point when his solo would hit a high or let's say the climax, the height of the solo, instead of just playing lines with the right hand and comping with the left, he would have both hands playing chords. And you could see this in some of the videos of the time, there's a live Coltrane video that's been out recently um, from 1965 and you can really hear him just going ga 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 and Elvin would incorporate ride cymbal pattern to match that Ding, ga, ding, da, ding, da. So all of a sudden, it would take on this whole new character. And it happened for the first time at the end of Crescent in McCoy solo. And then the next recording, which was Love Supreme, was when it fully was realized. And it continued into the next record, which was Transition. And incidentally, the harmony was becoming more and more modal and getting darker and darker. So you'd hear this like really dark, almost sinister, evil sound, and then bashing these chords together while keeping time while McCoy was soloing. It was one of the greatest things that I ever heard. And when I heard it, I was just like, what is this? Like, this is different. And it's certainly different than Herbie and Tony backing up Wayne or Miles, let's say it was a completely different aesthetic. It just really touched me and it moved me later on. They released the single live version of the record from France called love Supreme live. And it came out on the remastered double CD of a love Supreme. And when you hear resolution in that version, it's even deeper, it's longer, the chordal stuff between Elvin and McCoy is just incredible. So this particular tune really exemplifies this thing for me, which, of course, as a college student, every piano player I played with, we would just hit every chord together just because we could. And then we realized, okay, this is getting really goofy. Stop it. <laughs> you know. Or if I would play with a heavier piano player and he would do it and I would go with it, go with him, he'd be like, Dude, can you just get off my back a little? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I need a little space here. You're crowding me. <laughs> and I'll never forget in my studies with Elvin, I actually brought this up. I said, listen, I got to ask you, when you and McCoy started to play these chords together, did you talk about it? And I felt like it was almost like a Seinfeld episode, you know? And, and he's just like, you know, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, at the height of his solo, he would hit a chord and then you would adjust the ride pattern and you would crash the ride cymbal, sort of a push crash idea. And then you would hit the chord with him. He goes, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, and I would play it for him. And and he was like, yeah. And he's sort of like reminiscing, listening to this. And I'm like, you still haven't answered the question. Mm -hmm. Is this pre-planned?" Did you talk about it? How did this come to be? And the simple answer was they were just playing.
0: I will say, though, I, did you play your five B's w- on his ride or did you bring
1: out like the toothpicks? I'd be so nervous to actually play it. No, I played my five B's. And in fact, he gave me, you know, of course, he had a stick bag just uh, tied to the floor, Tom. So he had all his sticks there. But at the end of the month, he gave me a pair of sticks, which are, I mean, they're too light for me. And long beads. I mean, just like they're sure. unplayable. And I was thinking like, oh my God, I got Elvin sticks. I'm going to play these until they're not, they, they don't exist anymore. I, you know, I've never played them. They're just, they're just not my thing. Everyone's hand is different. Everyone's perception, everyone's rebound, like everything's different. Mm-hmm. So those are the sticks that he chose, but I used my five B's and the symbol still sounded <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> That's so I couldn't awesome. couldn't ruin those. <laughs> Do you know what happened to those?
0: Because um, his, if I remember correctly, he has, towards the end of his life or maybe most of his life, he had his wife that was like his drum tech. Was she yeah. involved or?
1: Keiko was there actually, yeah. She had this weird thing that she would shine the cymbals with olive oil. I'm a part of a lot of drum forums online and like there's always people like writing in and saying, what's the best cleaner for the cymbals? And, does anyone know where I could find that Piesty cleaner? Because it's better than all the others. And, and I'm thinking, who cleans cymbals? Like the whole purpose is to get as much, you know, to oxidize the metal to help with the deadening of the sound, to make it darker, warmer, drier, all these things. And here comes Keiko with olive oil <laughs> shining them with a paper towel. And I'm like are we going to fry garlic on them? Like, what? <laughs> I don't understand, you know, she wanted them really shiny, but they still had their patina at that point. They were 20 year old symbols. So they still had that Brown. Okay. Look, but yeah, odd, you know, he, he had switched. He, I think he had went to um, Istanbul and then he went to Zildjian ultimately. So I, I, I never knew what happened to the K's. I know he had one set stolen in the sixties in Europe and he actually came across them but they were long gone so he didn't you know reclaim them i know that he had a separate apartment where he lived on central park west that was basically what we today would call new old stock drums and cymbals wow i'm not saying he was a hoarder but he had like boxes of Gretsch round badge drums that he just never used and never opened Um, I I know that Keiko sold a lot of the gear to, um, I think it's either Seattle or port Portland, Oregon, the Pacific Northwest is a drum shop that got a lot of his stuff and the prices were just, I I mean, out of this world, I I mean, a draw an Elvin drum set was $20,000. So I, I don't think she passed on any of this stuff to anybody. I mean, there's a history of drummers passing on. You know, Max Roach gave a K to, to Tony. And I mean, people give stuff to, to the up and comers. I, I don't know of anything. Like Tony gave Wallace Roney a mid 60s uh, round badge Gretsch drum set. And there's actually a story that the Nefertiti ride, the old K, um, was in Wallace's possession. Oh, wow. And there's another story that when Tony used to rehearse the band at Wallace's house in Montclair, New Jersey, he would go to the house and play the old Miles drums and cymbals. Because by then he was playing the big yellow drums and the cymbals were brand new Zildjians and they were brighter and washier. And he would play the old stuff. And I think from what I had heard, and a very reliable source, that Wallace had said to him, You could still play that way and tony had said responded by saying he of course he could but he chose not to so i guess if you look at the big scheme of things and like tony changed drumming why would he repeat it yeah so that yell the big yellow drum phase was like a second life why would he go back but i guess he had a little bit of fun playing his old gretchies with the old case and and sounding like he did on Miles Miles. And I'm sure Mulgrew and and Wallace and the cats were just like, Oh, my God, this really is Tony. Because, you know, when you saw them at that period on stage, Tony had a separate stage for the yellow drums on top of the stage. And he was at the front of the band and it was like, holy moly. Is he ever loud? (laughs) Is he ever big? Like the drums are huge, like. Wow, I just realized I didn't even put a Tony record down for the big five. I'm going to have to uh, speak speak to my therapist about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is why we can have repeat customers. So it just means you'll have to come back on eventually. I would um, love
1: to. Okay, what's number two?
0: <laughs> hey, y'all. I wanted to... <laughs> I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by 5.5 snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, And Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was gonna be or if it was gonna be even Big Fat Five at all. but I went to his garage, his, his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through. The episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsenrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour and I didn't keep it. And I regretted it ever since then, just cause I was trying to pinch pennies at the time. And I just kept thinking about it. And so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, check it out, reach out to me, go to Vessel Drum Co. The Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. And check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. All right. Number two is Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. Came out in 1968. The artist is Chick Korea. And the song choice, well, you gave me a two of them. So we can choose between Steps or Matrix. And the drummer's Roy Haynes. So please take
1: it away. So, Roy, with his nickname of Snap. Crackle and pop really invented a style, unique to him. This started in the old days, and he played in every generation, with every musician from every generation, from Charlie Parker, Pat Metheny into Kenny Garrett. Mm. So he played with every age group while he got older. So it, it's not like he got older and he only played with old guys. Um, when you listen to some of some of the later recordings, you'll see that wow. You know he's surrounding himself with you know danilo perez and john patatucci or kenny garrett young guys um and he sort of initiated this style that's why he has the nickname that it was very upbeat oriented do da do da tico du-ga, god and it was very staccato very very short and it was non-stop i mean it was just a total stream of consciousness improvisation and no one ever did it and no one since. Like he's he's very, very unique. You can say 100 drummers are influenced by Elvin. You know, you could say that Adam Nussbaum can put on a real good Elvin. Everyone's into Tony and you could even say like, Bill Stewart can sound like Tony. Mm-hmm. when I went to college, Terry Lynn Carrington sounded just like Tony, especially on, on an old Gretsch drum set with um, two old Ks. I mean, she, she, she was Tony back then but no one has sounded like Roy he's so unique and the quality is so high that at a particular point in time of the Coltrane quartet when Elvin was incarcerated. Roy was the logical choice to be the drummer to fill in and sub. And I have to say when you listen to those recordings there's a studio. There's a live in Seattle. I think there's probably three recordings when you're listening to Roy with Coltrane. And I can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but you don't miss Alvin. It's like there was never a guy named Alvin who played in Coltrane's quartet because that's how good Roy was and that's how strong it was. Mm-hmm. It was just ridiculously good. I think the culmination of his style really occurred with Chicory and Now He Sings, Now He Song, which is arguably the greatest trio record of all time. Mm. Um, trio. You know, obviously, we have to pay homage to Bill Evans' trio, which, of course, Chick comes out of as well. And certainly his McCoy influence, which was very prevalent at this time, the modal thing, the fourths in his left-hand comping. And Roy had a way of fitting into that so magically that that trio with Miroslav Vitas on bass was just sparkling. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really a regular group. And years later, in the early 80s, they went back in the studio and recorded the second recording. So they didn't really do much from 68 to 81 or 82. The record came out as a double, back back then it was an LP, Mm -hmm. and then to about double CD. It was called Trio Music. And it was those three guys but not playing any of the stuff from the earlier recording. And at that point they played one CD of just completely free stuff and one CD of only Monk tunes and their interpretation. And Roy had played with Thelonious Monk and certainly Chick is influenced by Monk. Mm-hmm. Miroslav was just, you know, a prodigious bass player who I had an opportunity to study with when I was getting my masters at New England Conservatory. And I was playing with him gigging with him and practicing with him. I would go to his house and he would send me on a beer run. He was drinking the Czech beer Pilsner Urkel's. Oh, yeah. And he was getting more and more lubricated as the day would would go on. (laughs) We would play and he would sort of tell me what he used to practice with Dejanette in the 70s, bass and drums together. And then one day at the conservatory, there was a young piano student who had transcribed and memorized the entire rec- recording of Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. He asked Miroslav, he said, would you play a session with me? So Miro called and said, yeah, this guy wants to play a session and, you know, let's meet at the conservatory. So Miro was there with his bass, which was the same bass as the recording. And I'm set up and this guy playing piano, note for note from Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. And if we start and I'm listening to it And I'm hearing, like, I'm listening to the record. Wait, I'm the drummer on the record. But I'm not doing what Roy did because I can't. Yeah. And I don't know how to. But wait, that bass sounds oddly familiar, even though it's different notes. But the sound, the timbre of his finger hitting the string. And I, I just, I went nuts. I mean, it was just, it was the weirdest experience I've ever had hearing something, contributing to it, and then hearing the original guy from the recording. Wow. It was really weird. And I've had other opportunities. I mean, I've played John Abercrombie tunes with Abercrombie that I have records. I played Michael Brecker tunes with Mike. I played Dave Holland tunes with Dave. Like, I've had a really, really great time doing this stuff. But because the piano player was playing Chick note for note, and and Miro was Miro, and I wasn't Roy, it just turned into this like mind game.
0: Well, do you want to play, do you want to play steps? uh, Or or do you want to just go into, okay, let's just, this is the first song on the record. So here we go.
1: Right off the bat, right off the bat. Listen to that ride. One thing that's really monumental about this recording is that the very first existence of a Piesty flat ride. Oh, really? Well, if there's ever
0: a marketing campaign around that, that's there it
1: is. If you ever want to promote a, that symbol, <laughs> yeah. that's the recording to do it. I mean, it was an 18-inch, and he actually gave the symbol to Chick. And there's a video floating around YouTube well before Chick passed away that Chick had sent it to Sabian. Sabian reproduced the ride, and he's a being them back and forth. Um, But that was the first recording of Pisces flat ride ever. And Roy played pretty much a flat ride throughout the rest of his career. And it really has a particular stick attack sound. It's unlike anything else. I mean, there were a couple attempts by other companies to, to make the bell smaller, notably the, the mini bell with Zildjian. And then ultimately they came out with their version of the flat, very different. Istanbul, some of the Turkish companies came out with flats, but nothing that really had the crystalline quality and the woody stick attack as the, uh, the version, just a tremendous instrument. Absolutely tremendous. And one quick story about this trio. So after this recording, they began to tour and they released subsequent recordings that are all great and it's just it's a, a really great trio and when Chick had his i believe it was his 60th birthday at the Blue Note he had a month long residency that he, all the groups that he played with over the years would um you know play a week so he we had this trio up and they played another week they played some of the now we sings now we Sop stuff but a funny story for Miroslav during one of these chicoria tours they were playing opposite i believe it was either sonny rollins or joe henderson and dejanet was playing with the other group and of course jack and mirro were really good friends so at the time of Chick's sound check boy got a phone call so they said listen can J- let let jack do this the sound check so i said to mirro i said are you kidding chick jack and you because of course jack played with chick with miles and other recordings as well and i was like okay with all due respect to roy that must have been something yeah and and miroslav in his infinite way about him is like no man no not at all roy's the man it was no it's, it's all roy man it's all roy with that Czech accent of his basically discounting Jack and saying, <laughs> "No, the real thing is Roy." You might dig Jack, and he's great, but it's really Roy. I was a little surprised by that one, but he was steadfast.
0: He's yeah, he's hearing something we don't. Maybe um, I mean, again, obviously, nothing against Jack, but um, do you know if by chance I mean, is he still performing in New York at all, or since the pandemic has he stopped?
1: He stopped, mm. and. You know, he's been suffering from dementia long before. And his son was guiding him on tours and on gigs. He he was having some difficulties. um, But he could still play. And he could still sound like Roy. So a few people have post clips here and there. So you could actually see an elderly Roy still playing. gut 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 and you can still see and hear some of that stuff but you know if you look at the infrastructure of life and humanity I mean no one has come out of this alive yeah right and we're all going down at some point and unfortunately Roy is quite elderly in his mid to late 90s and you know suffering from Alzheimer's and I don't believe he's gonna perform again. I mean, mm-hmm. anything's possible. Maybe they'll bring him up to play one single tune. You know, with all the respect and reverence, the guy who's had a career in every single decade playing with, you know, every level of musician. There is this, you know, on a lighter note, there is this one funny story of a somewhat recent Roy gig. I probably shouldn't even be saying this, but <laughs> maybe it adds a little humor to the the gravity of life. So they were playing a Monk tune, and the tune was called Play Twice. <laughs> okay, so you know where this is going, I know right? where this is going, yeah. And the person who told me w- was at the gig, and he was laughing. So I felt like if I'm ever going to repeat this, I could say it with a smile on my face. And so it's all out of love, yeah. Absolutely, and total respect. But after, after the tune, you know, Roy gets on the mic, and he starts talking. And, you know, just the same like Max Roach had dementia. And when he would get on the mic, it was like, okay, get the hook out because, you know, Roy's talking to the audience and everyone's really happy to see him and to hear him. And basically, the thing is, it's like, well, we're going to move on to the next tune. And this is a favorite of mine. This is a Thelonious Monk tune called Play Twice. And his son's backstage mortified, like, oh, my God, no, Dad. And the guys in the band are like, okay, he's joking. Like, this is a pun on words. Sure. And so he counts it off as they're going to play it. And the guys are like, he played this already. <laughs> guess you had to be there, but yeah.
0: No, hey, he deserves to play that as many times as he wants. I mean, yeah, being, I hope I live to 90-something. I mean, God, what a great life.
1: Yeah, amazing.
0: But, all right. right. All right, so <laughs> I love that. So number three is uh, Still Live release here is 1986 and the artist is keith jarrett song choice is well you said
1: all in every song which i'm assuming just
0: means the whole record (laughs) i actually tried to look for all all in every
1: song yeah it's uh, just a tremendous thing i mean that group came into existence i mean they played with each other in different incarnations charles lloyd quartet had jack and keith Mm -hmm. of course keith with miles and jack and in 1975 gary peacock after a hiatus of playing Um, recorded for the ECM record label an album entitled Tales of Another which was the first version of these three playing together as a trio Mm -hmm. so at the end of the 70s leading into the 80s Manfred Eicher the producer of ECM along with Keith came up with the concept of playing jazz standards you know the great American songbook as it's sometimes referred to and essentially they went into the studio for two days and they recorded three records worth of material standards, volume one, which is tremendous standards, volume two, which is some of the tunes that are a little bit slower and changes, which is more of just the free stuff. And then after the record came out to great fanfare, they began touring. And that group toured for, I don't know, 30 plus years releasing a record every year or two. So in the first tour in the mid eighties, they released standards live, which was phenomenal. And I was actually at that concert. It was just amazing to see this gig. And I was just like, oh my God, these guys live. And the record came out and I saw the date and I was like, I was there. And The next one was uh, the following year's tour still live, which was in my estimation, even deeper. It's just a phenomenon of interplay and spirituality it's just that group had such a such a thing They released I think three videos all recorded in Japan and further recordings throughout the tours I don't think they did another studio record but they certainly recorded most of the gigs live they would you know release live in Tokyo live in Oslo whisper not like this just so many titles of all all live recordings but when I look back and and I listened and think of this group, which I've seen them many, many times, um, I I still think that Still Live is, is my favorite. to choose the one tune that has probably the longest piano intro drummers need to hear this too absolutely
0: subtle left foot in the hi-hat, so, so great.
1: So into a bass solo. So what's interesting about this is this, this is the first incarnation of a Turk ride. Dejanet had recently um, departed from Paiste, where he and Tony, in fact, had helped design the 22-inch Sound Creation Dark Ride. Mm. And when he left, he went over to Istanbul and he was still playing a Pisces flat and a Pisces china. But they, along with him, had invented the Turk ride, which essentially which was an unlathed ride symbol, just a completely hammered symbol. You could see the pictures of it in the videos of this time period. And it was unlathed and hammered. And it gave a very, very strong, dark, dry stick attack, which is just a phenomenon. And, and the company still offer Turk Rides to this day. It really became a thing.
0: What's the ride symbol you used in those, those Vic Firth instructional videos, Those that hammered symbol?
1: That's a, a Peisty prototype that they worked with me on designing, similar to the, the Jack Vane mm-hmm. of going for that sort of Turk. The thing is, I was really experimenting with smaller cymbals because I felt like I could control them a little bit more by bashing them and coming back to stick where these guys, a lot of them, Bill Stewart, Jack, Tony, they all really use 22s. I could never really control a 22 and when I started like push crashing and bashing it it would just get away from me and then I was just too loud too often, too long. (laughs) So I was just like, there's got to be a smaller version of this, which of course there wasn't. So I worked with different companies to try and come up with something that I could use as a main ride. Also, it was a lot easier for travel. Mm. I had custom made symbol bags in backpack formats that I could actually wear under my jacket or just wear as a backpack. And I never, ever had to check my symbols. I mean, I mean, you cracked the code. <laughs> yeah, which I'm, I'm going to jinx myself on my next trip. Um, <laughs> Sir, unfortunately, we do have to check these. <laughs> but it's only 18 inches. But you know, the overheads only 14. Um, so over the years, Pi has been incredibly generous in developing ride symbols. Other companies have tried to lure me away by coming up with smaller rides and to see if I would jump ship, which I haven't. But having a symbol that I, I had a hand in designing sort of allowed me to really articulate the ride in the way that I play, and know that the symbol would never really get away from me.
0: Well, number uh, number four, and you you did mention uh, Michael before. You did get a chance to to play with Michael. So the album's Michael Brecker. The release here's 1987. The artist is of course Michael Brecker, and the song choice is Syzygy. and. Again, so I'm not sure if we did mention or clarify, the last one was Jack Dijonette on the drums, and this one is also Jack on the drums. So uh, take it away, and then we'll listen to some
1: Syzygy. Yeah, Jack's been such a a monumental figure in my development, because I really feel that he took a lot of what Tony was doing riding-wise from the 60s, and a lot of what Elvin was doing drum-wise from the 60s, and sort of combined them into himself, And if you listen to early versions of Jack, when you're listening to Jackie McClain, Jackknife, the riding is very reminiscent of Tony, even all the way up to the Bill Evans Trio live at Montreux with Eddie Gomez on bass. The right hand is, is what I hear from Tony. And he was using an old K as well. Then when you listen to Charles Lloyd, with Keith on piano, incidentally, when it would get to the drum, and saxophone duets. It was very reminiscent of Coltrane and Alvin. And and Jack had developed a way of using double stroke roles around the set, very sim- similar, and influenced by what Alvin had done with Coltrane. So I really felt, checking those guys out in my formative years, that Jack was a really interesting combination of Tony and Elvin, And then certainly by the early 70s, he became Jack. And through the 70s period, when he played a lot of ECM records, in Europe on the European record label and then ultimately leading him back to more American recordings in the eighties with Michael Brecker, Dave Holland, Jack Dejanet, his own recordings, um, Dave Liebman and the myriad of people he played with. He really was fully realized as, as himself. And this is just a, a terrific recording also using the Istanbul Turk ride, the 22 inch and just really hearing the driving force of his playing and specifically the writing behind Mike's writing and Mike's saxophone solo. You know, I've had an opportunity years ago to hang with Michael Brecker's family. Very odd coincidence. My wife's family is related to Michael Brecker's family. Wow. So I would go into Philadelphia, where they're all from, and have holiday dinners with the Breckers. Wow. And I'll never forget the one time sitting next to Mike's dad, Michael, he wasn't there and him saying, you know, Mike's releasing this record with Jack Dejanette on drums. And I'm like, I know I have an advanced copy. (laughs) (laughs) And and and, And plus I played the music with Mike before it came out on the record. And it was like, he really likes Jack, like Jack's his favorite drummer. And i'm like i know he he loves his playing he told me and he goes have you really checked out jack have you heard him and i'm like (laughs) yeah since i was like 12 yeah Mm -hmm. it was funny because he you know he didn't really know me very well didn't know what i was into and just just like i'm having dinner with michael Brecker's father right (laughs) he was just trying to relate to you yeah yeah and he's like you know jack tation is really good drummer and i'm like uh yeah so this is just a, just like a, just a great version of the two of them playing together.
0: It's like talking to an engineer. Have you
1: ever heard of equalization? It's
2: like, Oh right. yeah. Yeah. Right. I'll or check
1: we it out. The, you know, we sort of adjust the sound, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No? Um, okay. <laughs>
0: All right. Here's Syzygy. is insane
1: I look at it as he's sort of riding on the entire drum set yeah the whole drum set is the voice there's anything better in all of yeah. life. <laughs> I mean this this transcends boundaries. This is jazz and rock. This is everything.
0: All right. So number five, uh, the album's Paths, Prince, release is 1982. The artist is uh, John, Jan Gabarek. Jan Gabarek. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely... Norwegian, yeah. A Norwegian saxophone player. And in fact, the story goes that Michael Brecker said the only reason he even bothered to keep practicing was because Jan Gabarek was on the scene. But being a European player, recording for an ECM label. He never really had the draw here in the States. Um, Having grown up in Canada, getting a lot of European music, even before some of the American stuff would come into the country, I was exposed to ECM records and European jazz early on. And this particular drummer, Jon Christensen, was a very, very big influence of mine. And he passed away a couple years ago of dementia, unfortunately. And he was a very, very big Tony Williams freak. And in the early days when American musicians would tour in Scandinavia and they wouldn't bring the rhythm section that they would, you know, hire rhythm section du jour. um, He was called upon to play with Sonny Rollins or whoever wearing, you know, the black suit, the thin tie, the white shirt, you know, the typical dress of the day. And he got heavily influenced in some of the later Miles recordings that Miles started to incorporate um, straight eighth music into the quintet with Tony playing, most notably In a Silent Way and Kilimanjaro. The European aesthetic to jazz music really comes out of the classical music, which is straight eighth based, not rounded eighths or triplets, which comes out of the you know African diaspora and the blues. American style of the music that we, you know, listen to as American jazz or American classical music. And the European aesthetic remained as the straight eighth and incorporated a a modern style of swing playing. But it was it was essentially more broken. And Christensen was a guy who really exemplified this style. He influenced Dejanet in the 70s as Jack started to record for ECM. And Dejanet influenced him and it was a, a really great pleasure and honor to, to have met him and to spend a lot of time with him, both in Europe and in New York when he would come and play. And a funny story it was the very first time I went to Europe, I was playing in, um, 1984, I was playing in, in all through Scandinavia. And one of the stops was Oslo, Norway, where the ECM studio was located. And a recording had just finished with Jack, and the record company had to deal with the hotels. So they had the studio, they had to deal with these hotels. So we check in, being, you know, young, bright-eyed, bushy tail Americans. And we go up to the desk, and, you know, different culture, different language, different sense of humor. And I went up and I said, can I have Jack Dejanette's room? And the receptionist looked, looked at me like is there something wrong with you? <laughs> and, and I thought maybe she didn't understand. And I said, so Jack was staying here. I I understand that he just checked out. Can I have his room? <laughs> like, she's like, uh, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, forget it. And the guy's looking at me like, dude, what are you saying? Like, you want to sleep in the room that Jack slept in? And I'm like, well, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> like, what I'm saying. <laughs>
1: I'm going to stay in Jack's room. Yeah, he's got mojo. You want to sleep in that environment for sure. So, of course, I have no idea if they give me Jack's room. But as soon as I go into the room, I open up the phone book and I say, I'm going to call you on Christensen. And so I open up the phone book and there must be 50 pages of Christensen's. <laughs> yeah. It's the most common Norwegian name. Yep. And I'm looking and it's J. Jay jay this jay that jay jay christensen jay jay million but only one j-o-n so i'm like this has to be the guy i'm gonna call him yeah pick up the hotel phone i call him and this norwegian man answers Yeah, hello <laughs> and i'm like hi is this uh Jon christensen he goes yeah who, who's this <laughs> i said is this Jon christensen the drummer he goes yeah, yeah, this is Jon Christensen. Who, who is this? <laughs> and I'm like, this is a drummer who recorded with Keith Jarrett and my song and <laughs> John Gabarek. He's like, yeah, yeah, who, who is this? <laughs> and I said, yeah, this is Ian Froman. I'm a drummer from Canada and I live in New York and, you know, I'm touring Norway for the first time. And Ian? Ian Froman? Hello. And I'm like, hi how are you and he goes i'm doing good how are you i said listen i'm in oslo staying at the hotel that the ecm guys stay at and i'd like to meet you and he's like yeah well i'm playing tonight with arnold anderson and jan gabarik's coming to the gig why don't you stop by i'll put you on the guest list i'm like what you okay <laughs> and i went to the gig i took a cab to the gig by myself and i see them setting up and i go over and i said that's Jon christensen i'm gonna go over and say hi so i go up and i i say hi yon this is ian from and i spoke to you Ah, oh, ian hi how are you comes gives me a big hug introduces me to the whole band i know everybody from recordings yon barak comes in to listen to the band and i'm and i'm meeting my ecm idols they're buying me drinks i'm on the guest list and i'm like Oh my god like this is crazy how incredibly nice of these guys every subsequent visit after that i would call him he'd come down to the studio or the club and we would hang and one of the most memorable times was he came down and he's in the studio and of course he's familiar with the studio and the engineer because he's recorded hundreds of records there he sits down at my drum set and he goes So, this is your set you're playing your drums like this i'm like yeah and then he starts to play him like the way he plays on the record dude uh, uh, uh. like all those sounds that fluttery left hand on the snare the ridey stuff with those little crashes the hi-hat splashes and i'm like i'm watching this happen i have every record that this guy's done and i'm seeing how he does it oh my god Like, are you kidding me? This is too good to be true. Like, this is how he does it? And he became like a lifelong friend. One of my former Berkeley students, Helge Christensen, became very close friends when he moved back to Norway. Him and John would hang out all the time, even as John, unfortunately, started this early stages of dementia and later passing on. And I'm in touch with Helge to this day, and we often referred to to john and john came to the states to play with very various groups i would meet him in the city we would go out to have drinks eat in in new york city it was very common we could stay out until the sun came up and i would walk him to this hotel and at this point like we couldn't see or walk <laughs> yeah and it was just like i gotta get home and he's like yeah hey, i'm going to my room i'll see you Ian. thanks you know and it was just like i'm hanging out with young christensen like what a beautiful thing you know That is so amazing. I love that story. So this music really typifies the sort of etherealness of the European aesthetic to jazz and to the ECM record label and that straight eighth and just the melancholy of of it all. It's just really, really tremendous. So maybe start with the first tune. All right. Yeah, here's here's the path. This is one of Bill Frizzell's first recordings as well, he first came on the scene. There's a deepness to this. And unfortunately, a lot of Americans don't know this music. And when it transferred from LP to CD, it was lost. I remember seeing young Gubarak in concert in Europe. You know, thousands of people would go see him play these outdoor gigs. Um, he came to New York, played at the bottom line there were 30 people. Wow. It was so disappointing. Like they just didn't know him. They didn't know the music. He was really sad. Very, very deep and completely improvisational. There's a lead sheet. They play the melody, the head. They improvise over the chord changes. They go back to the head. Just like we do for American jazz, except we do it swung. They do it in a lot of cases, either broken swing or straight eighth.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, Ian, um, I know you, you, uh, you were gracious enough to give me your time and I know that you're a busy guy. So before you go real quick, where can people find you? I will link it all in the show notes, but if people want to just find out more about you, maybe study with you, um, and, uh, by the way, I will say, I was just, you know, in researching you, your name came up on ratemyprofessor.com that people can do. It's like a Yelp for professors. Your previous students are obsessed with you. It was like five out of five across the board. I'm not sure if you've masochistically searched for yourself there, but um, all your students have nothing but the greatest things to say about learning with you. And so you should be proud of that. But, uh, yeah, where can people find you and possibly learn with you?
1: Um You know, I've been teaching at Berkeley. I just completed my 38th year, but I've always had a a strong online presence for lessons. You know, my Skype password is four letters. That's how old it is.
2: Like, Like
1: one of the very first Skype accounts. So I've been teaching on Skype for, I don't know how long, 25 years. But since Zoom came out with, you know, different filters for original sound from musicians and things like that, and COVID shut everything down, I've been teaching a lot of people from a lot of countries around the world and i'm i'm continuing my private practice pretty much on zoom nowadays because i can accommodate so many more people from around the globe my website host provider has just switched formats so at this point my website is just a contact page where people could reach me email and i actually list my phone number there so you could email me um i instagram My name, Ian Froman, on my Facebook page, Ian Froman, and I also have just a completely open one, Ian Froman Drums, where I post video clips and promotions for gigs as well. We're doing this a long time and I keep planning on doing it. And it's been just a wonderful ride to be able to play great music with great people for great people and to teach so many great young students and to influence generation after generation. When I started teaching, my students were older than I was. I started at Berkeley when I was 24. I had a lot of the older graduating, a lot of European students in their late 20s. Now, I'm older than my students' parents. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you look great. Talk about time warp. I've been doing a long time. I practice every single day. I'm dedicated to this art form, this music, to transferring knowledge of the instrument and just to passing it on to the next generation. My students have gone on to great heights. And it's just been an honor and a pleasure to be part of this world and this alternative lifestyle. I've never had a job. I've never worked. I play drums. I talk about drums. I practice drums. Like, wake up myself when's this going to end like oh my god you kidding yeah it's been amazing and i thank you for reaching out and tracking me down and 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 the support that you're giving musicians and providing an an outlet for us to speak our mind and you know to give our thoughts because it's important that people hear what the elders say (laughs) it's been a pleasure really a pleasure thank you so much and uh it's great to provide this opportunity. Yeah. Thank well, you. I will,
0: I will probably reach out to you and take a lesson myself. So, hopefully, I will see you soon. Um, but uh,
1: yeah, have a good day. You too. Take good care. Thanks so right. much. Bye bye.
0: This week's Little Skinny One comes from Jason Berthold from Chelsea, Michigan. He's a vintage drum nerd and currently plays in a group supporting singer songwriter Anne Earlwine. So Jason gave me a full list of his top five, but I'm going to choose Riverboat by Lee Dorsey from the album Yes We Can. It came out in 1970, and for my research, it features James Black on drums. the show if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews do that it helps more people find the show so it'll get bigger and better and hopefully i'll have a chance to sell out one day but you'll be an og listener that can brag to all your friends anyways why don't you go and check us out at bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on all the socials just search for Big Fat Snare Drum, and you will find us the show is edited in part using Isotope rx audio editor it's amazing so go check that out at isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for
2: the theme music. Bye.